dear colleague, dear friends, it's a great pleasure and a great honor to welcome you to this EHAT interviews. We have an exceptional guest today with Professor Manucci. Professor Manucci, very nice to have you today with us. Thank you. Thank you, Cedric. Professor Manucci, I would like to start with a few, a little introduction. You have been one of the key figures, but also one of the major witnesses to the extraordinary evolution of hemophilia care over the past five decades. You encapsulated recently these 50 years of evolution and revolution in a remarkable article that was published a few months ago in GTH. And uh, I propose that uh, we together journey through the distant and recent past, linger in the present and then turn our gaze towards the future. Through this discussion, I hope that our senior colleagues attending this interview will remember and that the younger generation will gain a much deeper understanding and vision of the challenges and the success that they've marked these 50 years of hemophilia care, certainly guided by one of the most brilliant and prolific experts of the last century and the present century, which is you. So Professor Manucci, uh, let's turn back to the past and your encounter with Judith Poole and her discovery of the cryoprecipitation technique. Uh, what was uh, the impact of this discovery, if I'm correct, you were there, and the development of the first factor concentrate in the 70s? Well, it was uh, the start of uh, modern hemophilia care in the late 60s, uh, because previously only blood and plasma were available, and you can imagine that they were not uh, useful to stop bleeding. Cryo, at least, was uh, concentrated, uh, so it could be infused in relatively small amount uh, without impinging uh, on the blood volume. But really, the step forward occurred in the 70s, when using basically the, the discovery of cryo as a weapon, uh, the pharmaceutical company produced uh, a number of uh, concentrates uh, whereby Factor eight and factor nine could be injected uh, not by drip uh, like cryoprecipitate, but by simple intravenous infusion. And that was a major step forward. It was called by the lay press uh, the success story of the decade because it did allow home treatment, it did allow self treatment by patients, could infuse themselves uh, by themselves or their patients. And also, it allowed the first. Uh, initiation of prophylaxis, that it is the prevention of bleeding instead of the treatment of bleeding. So that was really a big uh, step forward in the 70s. And do you think that uh, Judith Poole at that time anticipated the major advances that she achieved with, with this, you know, the discovery of this principle? You, you were there at that time. Well, I can only tell that uh, she was uh, a very nice lady, very pleasant, uh, and even though she was on sabbatical, so she wanted to, to enjoy the advantage of being in Oxford. Uh, uh, it was, uh, she, she was there with her husband. She was very prepared to teach me patiently how to prepare cryoprecipitate, which I used when I went back. I'm not a blood banker, but when I went back to Italy, I was able to implement it uh, with uh, 
the help of the blood bank. So she was aware of the big step forward, but probably uh, also of the development that took place uh, depending on his basic discovery. The factor eight is concentrated by cryoprecipitate of human plasma. Sure. And now let's, let's now move to another period uh, that you nicely describe in your paper. So let's now move to the period from the 80s to the 90s. So what would uh, stand out in your memory regarding this 1890s? Well, that's, uh, I could define a period of shadows and light uh, because uh, the shadows are that uh, uh, at that time, because evident that uh, this uh, very useful concentrate were transmitting uh, dreadful diseases, blood-borne diseases such as uh, HIV, and hepatitis, but the, let us say, the lights were that uh, the tragedy of AIDS and hepatitis did trigger, in my opinion, the development of techniques, uh, particularly by Ed Todden and other, that led to the cloning of the gene for factor eight and nine, which were the basis uh, for the production at the end of the decade of recombinant factor eight and recombinant factor nine. It changed dramatically the picture and also the life expectancy of this patient. And I want to remind that uh, in the 60s was no more than 20, 30, maximum 40 years. And in this period, he became uh, a little bit longer, that is uh, closer to 60, 70 years. So that was uh, a decade of lights and shadow, I tend to repeat. And then let's describe and focus on, on the next period from 2000, to 2010, it's not so far from from today, and you call this a, a consolidation phase. So, could you a little bit elaborate about this? Why do you name this a consolidation period? Well, uh, recombinant factors uh, became available, and also plasma-derived factors were safer, and so there was an extension of uh, a regimen of prophylaxis, which. Uh, beforehand was not used universally. And in that decade, a very important step forward was the demonstration by an article, a randomized article published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Manco Johnson and others, that prophylaxis is superior to uh, on-demand treatment, that is treatment only on the occasional bleeding episode to prevent uh, bleeding and to avoid arthropathy and the damage to the joints, which is the hallmark of hemophilia therapy. Um, there were also other advantages, but these were the main advantages. Uh, so that uh, I think it was an important decade, but certainly there were some attempts to get rid of HIV, certainly very important because uh, it was shown that heating the lyophilized concentrate could uh, avoid uh, the transmission of HIV. I remember when I went to Paris uh, and uh, I met uh, Montagnier, with whom we then uh, published uh, a study in The Lancet showing that uh, heat-treated concentrate were not transmitting uh, uh, HIV. They, they could unfortunately transmit hepatitis, but then the next big step forward in the same decade was the demonstration that the use of solvent detergent 
was able to inactivate also the hepatitis virus. So it was really a decade with a lot of progress. And when, uh, while well, reading your paper, well, clearly uh, you, you could not hide your major enthusiasm for the period 2010-2020 uh, with uh, a major therapeutic revolution, especially for the treatment of EPC, uh, and also new uh, new treatment by two extraordinary researchers. And in several papers, you have clearly emphasized their major contribution to the field of hemophilia, certainly Glenn Pierce, uh, known by most of us, and also uh, on the other side of the planet, Midori Shima. And they really made major contributions. So certainly in terms of uh, uh, producing no factor eight and new treatment approaches. So could you... Uh, Elaborate a little bit on, on the, the value of extended half-life factor 8 and factor 9. Certainly, uh, Glenn Pierce played a key role in developing them. Yes, you're right. He played a key role in developing the first type of extended half-life factor 8 and factor 9. So that's uh, why he is mentioned as a truly a pioneer. Uh, you know that uh, whereas for factor 9, there was a substantial change in the number, the, the number of infusions uh, that were needed uh, to, to prevent uh, uh, bleeding. Uh, that is, instead of, uh, let us say, two per week, uh, definitely one per week, if not uh, one every 10 days or fortnight, the situation was not so brilliant uh, for factor eight, uh, that uh, in which, uh, for which uh, the reduction of the infusion was less dramatic. Uh, and you know that that was due to the fact that the half-life of factor eight was dependent from that of available factor. And so the extended half-life were an advantage because they allowed infusion, let us say, at least twice a week, twice, three thrice a week instead of every other day, but certainly not as favorable and hemophilia B and more recent progress had been able, as we'll see later on, to overcome this problem of the ceiling effect induced by the relevant factor on the half-life of factor eight. And so on the first generation extended half-life products. And another major advance will certainly be the, the development of a B-specific antibody. This is so bright, <laughs> uh, so bright to think about, you know, the potential of this B-specific and clearly a pioneer here was uh, Midorishima. So that has clearly revolutionized the, the treatment, uh, but people still see strengths, but also some weaknesses in this new uh, agent, uh, this B-specific antibody mimicking factor eight. What, what's your view considering your long-standing experience in the field. How do you see this treatment innovation? Well, listen, the fact of moving from intravenous injection to subcutaneous uh, injection, obviously, is a big step forward. Probably I would list as a second uh, big step forward the fact that uh, patients with factor eight inhibitors uh, that could not be treated uh, easily, at least in terms of regular prophylaxis, could be put in regular prophylaxis as much as as easily and effectively as they appear without inhibitor. So that is the, the, the main uh, advantages of mesitzumab, which of course uh, is a fantastic drug, for mainly for the reason that I mentioned, but also of course for patients without inhibitors, it, it was a true advantage and the drug is becoming more and more widely used. I can foresee, for instance, uh, 
that uh, he make possible, although not at the moment uh, feasible, treatment also in countries where hemophilia centers are very far away from the actual patients, uh, because of course, uh, patient can do self-treatment and whole treatment much more easily than by means of an intravenous infusion. So these are the cons. Uh, there are um, uh, many cons. Uh, the, 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 sorry, the pros. The pros. Uh, cons are that uh, you know, there is still lack of demonstration of uh, superiority versus uh, uh, factor versus factor eight cons apart uh, from the route of administration. The fact that uh, being uh, discovered in the last few years there's still not a very long-term evaluation in real life, even though, of course, this is progressive improving. And also the fact that they we don't know yet whether the prophylaxis with emicizumab is able to prevent the damage of hemophilic arthropathy. Also, we are lacking direct comparison with the infusion but uh, so and also plus i would say the fact that zero bleeding that is no bleeding at all in the frame of prophylaxis has not been achieved with this product also in spite of the fact that probably the percentage of patient with zero bleeding increase in comparison with the first generation of extended half-life factor eight uh, the problem of thrombosis had been uh, of course uh, thrombosis uh, at least theoretically, may be related to the fact uh, that there is no natural regulator of the activity of this uh, product. And also there is not the peak and trough of uh, factor eight that of course uh, are, are, uh, are not advantageous from the point of view, it was easy, but are advantageous from avoiding a stable state of coagulation that might facilitate the risk of thrombosis. But notwithstanding the fact that the pivotal study, in the pivotal study, there were a lot of, uh, a number, a number of uh, uh, thrombotic epilogues, which are usually unusual in the pivotal study when patients are highly selective. And so side, rare side effects uh, are not easily encountered. This was really something that was uh, worrisome. However, I must say that now the drug has been used by several thousand of patients uh, throughout the world. So this risk of thrombosis is, has been, uh, in my opinion, reduced. Even though, personally, I believe that uh, older patient, a patient high risk of thromboembolic uh, uh, disease or who had thromboembolic disease should not use this, this drug because uh, they are, by definition, a very high risk of thrombosis. But that is a personal opinion that some of us, some of the listener may not uh, share. Yes, thank you. Well, you already uh, answered the, the next question, which was about the risk of thrombosis. And I wanted to know whether you were more concerned or reassured. Well, I can understand that you remain highly vigilant. We need to remain vigilant. Yes. And then, well, let's now address a, a new and key innovation in our field, which is gene therapy. So we won't have time to go into details of gene therapy. And we know that well, clearly, major advances have been achieved for hemophilia A as well as hemophilia B. There are some differences, but clearly, I think uh, the, the recent science 
showed us that it's possible to do that. So I'm always comparing to this uh, the traveling to the moon. So we can go to the moon. Human being can do that, but it's not possible. We won't spend all of us our holiday on the moon. Uh, but what about you? What's your current perception of gene therapy and its future? Enthusiasm? Less enthusiasm? Let us say, Cedric, that first of all, we have to consider that both the hemophilia enjoy, as we did discuss, an excellent treatment. So this must be considered for new therapy. New therapy, and I would say that the main problem at the moment for gene therapy, really the problem number one is the fact that it can be given to children, it can be given only to adolescents and adults. And this, of course, is a major mishap in, in a genetic disease because, of course, uh, children, infants, uh, that can be treated with emicizumab, by the way, are of course uh, the target uh, of uh, a curative therapy as it is gene therapy. That is my main problem. The main problem are that uh, particularly that you cannot, we cannot predict uh, easily the response uh, to both of the treatment for hemophilia A and B, uh, and, and that, that uh, it has been shown quite clearly for both that in some instances, uh, let us say, in rare instances, patients get very high level of a factor which may be dangerous, and others do not respond respond poorly and not at all. So the fact that the variability of response is a problem. The other problem, of course, the gigantic problem is the cost. Is the cost because the cost that being being mentioned is not affordable, but the majority of the healthcare system that exists at least in Europe. Uh, as you know, a uh, few patients, uh, probably three or four, to my knowledge, I'm sure the number is increasing all the time, have been treated, one in Germany and three in the in the United States. Certainly, I can see this is a problem in country with the National Health Service, like my country and other European countries. But certainly, I can envisage that there will be an improvement, uh, the side effects uh, due to uh, liver uh, damage uh, are probably going to be controlled by decreasing uh, the, uh, the the dosage of the vector or by changing the quality of the vector. So on the whole, I am enthusiastic. But certainly, I cannot forget uh, that we have an excellent treatment. Uh, and this is amicizumab as much as uh, the theory extended half-life uh, factor eight that I'm sure you want to briefly discuss. Yeah, and uh, let's now go back to also very promising innovations, among which, you know, this uh, completely modified factor eight. Some people name it uh, ultra long factor eight, so which is significantly modified that allows to normalize no, uh, coagulation for a few days out of seven. So, how do you see that that drug, this ultra long factor eight, as 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 a major advance too? First of all, I think that uh, the production of this uh, ultra-extended half-life factor eight is a monument of, to molecular engineering because yeah. they it's managed a jewel. To, it's a jewel. To add, yeah. They managed to add to the molecule uh, uh, factor that extend the half-life, and these were known, but also a piece of factor nine of 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 a filament factor that is the one that allows. Uh, the half-life of factor A to be independent uh, of the sealing role exerted by von Willemann factor. So that I was impressed when I first uh, 
uh, read, the I was the reviewer of the first phase one study in the New England and the writer commented that was very enthusiastic. Now we are in phase three and the results are confirming this highly engineered molecule is not increasing the risk of inhibitor, at least in previously treated patient. Pre previously treated patient. Previously untreated patient is another matter, but uh, there are some people that suggest uh, that may be less antigenic, even though it remains to be shown. So it is a great product, particularly it puts hemophilia A, those who want to continue to use factor eight and who are prepared to continue with interfusion infusion in the same situation of factor nine with the early standard half line factor nine product. That is the possibility to infuse it for once a weekly, if not every 10 days of every fortnight. So it is a major advantage. The product is not yet licensed in Europe, but is licensed in the United States. Hopefully it will come. And okay, so the people will have another choice to make dependent on the individual feature of the patient. And particularly, of course, for the children. But children can also, and infants, can also use amicizumab. We should not forget. Sure. Well, thank you. We still have a few minutes. And maybe we need now to cover another uh, categories of class of agents that we have not yet addressed, which are the, the rebalancing agents. So here, the strategy is totally different. The purpose is to generate more thrombin by uh, decreasing the activity of the physiological inhibitors, antithrombin, TSPI, activated protein C. So clearly a, a lot of research is going on in that area. So what's what's your view on, on this? Because some people are quite enthusiastic. Some have a little bit of concerns. How do you see how this, this drug will position themselves in, in, in the future is in this white uh, environmental new landscape of treatment? Well, certainly is a new approach to treatment that of rebalancing by quenching the anticoagulant activity or the natural occurring inhibitor. That is certainly a huge step forward. There are several possibilities of inhibiting antithrombic, tissue factor pathway inhibitor and activated protein C. I was concerned, like many of us, to begin with, that in the pivotal trial, there were several episodes of thrombosis. But the same thing is the thing, the thing, the situation is not different to that of a Michitsumat at the beginning. So the jury is still out, and when we have more case material and more products, now they are not licensed, perhaps we will come to the same conclusion that uh, it was just bad luck. Uh, my only problem is. Uh, the fact that they are not licensed, so I can only express my view. And also, not so much the fact of the thrombosis risk, but the fact that it is not clear to me which advantage they have compared to emicizumab and the ultra-extended half-life factor eight, and also the first generation of a standard factor nine product. Because, of course, some of them can be given once a month, which is an advantage. They can be given for hemophilia B, and also for other coagulation disorder, which is not the case of abyssizumab and uh, that can only be given to patients with factor A. So I can see an advantage for factor nine, for hemophilia B, also for rare coagulation disorders. But uh, uh, let us say once a month is an advantage, but uh, not all can be given once monthly. Some can be given every day, simultaneously, and this is pleasant. Other every week. So let us say that uh, I, 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 st I still, first of all, uh, Cedric, as you know, 
these are not yet licensed, so we haven't got the experience. And again, the pivotal clinical trials are patients are highly selected, and so uh, they cannot really um, re reproduce the situation occurring in real life, in real world, as we have seen and we have learned for emicytoma. And again, the jury is still out. That is my uh, short uh, statement. So thank you. Thank you for summarizing these 50 years of uh, major revolution. So maybe a last question. What are, certainly for our younger colleagues, what are the, the challenges uh, in your view, the few challenges for the years to come? The few challenges are that, uh, first of all, that uh, the majority of people in the world, in all in the low-income countries, but also in, in middle-income countries, do not have achieved the progress that, that we have achieved in Western countries. So that is, this is the main message. There are still many unsolved problems. I would like to see a direct comparison of the different products as we have done in the randomized comparison between recombinant and plasma-derived factors. But of course, this is probably wishful thinking because it will never occur. Uh, there is uh, still uh, looming large uh, the issue of prevention of inhibitors uh, because inhibitors can now be controlled. You can get rid of them through immune tolerance and of course, uh, prophylaxis uh, is feasible amicitsima, but uh, it's still a complication that affects one in three, if not one in four, uh, a patient with hemophilia. And so that is still a major issue for research. So there are still many unmet needs, including the goal of zero bleeding, which can probably be obtained through gene therapy, but uh, at the moment, uh, not yet. So I hope that uh, young people are stimulated to continue to dedicate themselves uh, to this fascinating field, to the fascinating uh, associated field of thrombosis or hemostasis and thrombosis, and that uh, we can still see enthusiasm in uh, in this field, plus uh, the big problem which I put as first uh, of uh, the developing of uh, low-income countries where the situation is certainly much more, uh, much less uh, brilliant than it is in Western countries. Well, thank you. Well, Peter, it has been a, a great pleasure, great opportunity, great honor that you could share with us your very long-standing experience in the field, your your insight, uh, your never-ending enthusiasm, uh, your dedication to our field. So that was great. So I hope, and your inspiration, constant inspiration. So I hope that you enjoyed this interview as I did, and I hope that all our colleagues who have been listening to us enjoyed it as we did, both of us. Thank you very much. Thank you to you. It was a pleasure for me.